0: You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles.
1: I was going to shoot something up driving to work and I forgot to bring something to dilute the the cocaine with and I stopped by the side of the road and scooped up from a stagnant drainage ditch enough dirty water to, to use to shoot up with.
0: My guest today is Dr. Linville Meadows. He is the author of A Spiritual Path to Recovery from Addiction, A Physician's Journey of Discovery. Thanks, Brett. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here today. Glad to have you on. Would you like to introduce yourself and maybe tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, I would be glad to.
1: I'm 72. I've been in recovery since 1997. I'm a retired uh, physician, a cancer doctor. And I live with my wife on a little uh, hobby farm up in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. When I was uh, early in my recovery, this man named Dan was sitting behind me in a uh, a meeting down in Jacksonville, Florida. And he says, "Lynn, he says, I've been in the program 34 years and I don't have bad days anymore. Well, it's 23 years for me, and uh, Brett, I do not have bad days anymore, which is really quite wonderful. From the very beginning, from the very, very first, uh, things have gotten better almost every day. There's been some ups and downs. There's been some days that weren't as much fun as others, but the gifts of the program just continue to pile up for me. I am quite literally the happiest I have ever been in my life. I mean, there's still a lot of things going on. I could give you a list of medical diagnosis as long as you're on, but you know, life is just good, and it it has to do with the point of view. I guess that, that recovery has taught me. I was on the university faculty at U.N.C. and then later at Duke, when I was a, when I was a a young man, we experimented with pot and LSD and some other stuff. You know, and we were all about raising our consciousness, but um. After a while, we just wanted to get high, and we did. Uh, I had a strict rule. I would never smoke pot unless I had it, okay? But when I was in school, I just didn't have time for all that stuff. I didn't have the inclination. I went for years and years without doing any kind of drugs. And then when I was on the faculty at um, at the University of North Carolina uh, Medical School, uh, we would go on this, what they called a recruiting dinners, where you would bring in new people to try to get them to join the faculty, and go out to very fancy restaurants. And um, the boss was into wine, and he he would serve have wine served with all the meals. And and one night I suddenly realized that the wine was giving me the same buzz I got when I smoked pot. I mean, as an assistant professor, you can't actually can't go out on the street and try to cop a lid. It just wouldn't work, you know. But the wine was a pretty nice buzz. Uh, I mean, after all, fine wines, weren't that part. wasn't that part of the good life that you'd worked all these many years to get? I don't know how it happened after that. How it slid from one glass of wine with dinner to two glasses to a bottle every night to two bottles every night. I would come home from work, open a bottle of red and let it breathe, and I would drink a bottle of white while the red was breathing. I got to where I wouldn't stop at a restaurant for lunch unless it had a wine list. And I never, never realized it was happening. I never saw it coming. Uh, it just sort of slid up on me. And, and even though I'll come to the other part of my story, but I never realized that I was actually an alcoholic until much, much later when I, when I realized that I'd been having blackouts. And the, the more I look back on, on those years, the more blackouts I can find. My undoing was actually cocaine. As my daughter told me once, Dad, cocaine is God's way of telling you. You've got, you're making too much money. And I think she may have been right. What was a sort of a party favor and and an aphrodisiac went to becoming uh, an every night sort of thing. One night, my, uh, the guy that that brought me the Coke came in and uh, plopped some down on on the kitchen table there. And I said, help yourself. And he whipped out a syringe and wrapped a, Uh, a belt around his arm and shot up some cocaine and he did it again. And I, I looked at my wife at the time and I said, I would never do that. We could never absolutely ever do that. Well, in the world of addiction, never was about two weeks. Now you got to remember, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time drawing blood, and uh, as an as an oncologist, we gave everything by vein. We gave chemo, platelets, uh, antibiotics, fluids, whatever, you know. And so it was very, very easy to walk back to the nurses' area and grab a couple of blood, butterflies, a couple of syringes, and just drop them into my pocket, and nobody ever noticed. So I was halfway to my addiction when I, as I was heading home, you can be an alcoholic for ten, twenty, thirty years, and and Still be kind of functional, but the nice thing, at least for me, about cocaine was it took me down pretty fast. It didn't take long at all, uh, before I was just in in the, you know, in a horrible way. On my 49th birthday, I woke up and realized that I was addicted to drugs and alcohol. The pathways that took me there just seemed so smooth and easy and everything seemed uh, to be make quite good sense. I can remember driving down the highway with a needle in my arm going 60 miles an hour around the curve, shooting up cocaine as, as I went. And for some reason, that just seemed normal at the time. I mean, how, what kind of craziness is that? There was one day I, I had... um. Was gonna gonna shoot some up driving to work, and I forgot to bring something to dilute the the cocaine with. And I stopped by the side of the road and scooped up from a stagnant drainage ditch enough dirty water to, to use to shoot up with. Somebody said later that that was kind of the last ditch, wasn't it? And it didn't matter to me what kind of garbage or germs or whatever was in that. All that mattered was getting it into my blood. That's truly my at least part of my insanity. One day. All uh, well, my nurses had been wondering. They thought I was depressed. They didn't know what was going on. And then one day they they figured it out, and they said, "Doc, you go on home. Uh, we know what's going on. We'll take care of it." Well, I knew what was. I went home, and and I knew what was going to happen was that the next morning they they were going to the medical board would show up, the medical police would be there. They would take me away in handcuffs, and that was the end of my career in medicine. All, all the stuff that I had worked for my whole life uh, was about to go down the drain. What's funny was that some days uh, I really, really wanted to quit, and some days I just didn't care. That was the day, that was the time that I'd reached this point where it was either quit or die. And people talk about hitting the bottom, what does it mean to hit a bottom? And I think that that for me, that, that, that pretty well characterizes, uh, in the big book it says we, we stood at the turning point. And I think that's what it means. I was at a point where it was either quit or die. I knew I was living in this wonderfully fancy, expensive house, driving in a very fancy, expensive car. And I knew that I was going to die chasing the dope man down a dark alley. Somebody put a bullet in my head and I just accepted that, you know. So I went to work that morning and and the medical police actually didn't show up. In fact, what they did was they sent. There's this group that helps physicians. Um, it's called the Physicians Recovery Network, the PRN. And what they do, it's 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 mostly composed of of uh, impaired physicians who who found a way back, and their job is to help others. And it, they protect you from the medical board. But they give you they give you this this um, command. Basically, you have to go to a PRN approved rehab facility. One that's especially geared to take care of physicians. And that also includes nurses or, or uh, lawyers or anybody else with enough money to pay for country club rehab. Uh, but you, if you don't finish the program and with the approval of the staff at the, at the rehab, your license is gone. Right. And so that was a very, very strong impetus for, um, for us to, to get our acts together. I remember that the, the guy that showed up to my office that day, his name was Paul, and he had he wasn't dressed in a suit, he wasn't didn't have a gun or handcuffs, didn't have a badge saying medical police. And he had this really, I guess I would say shit eating grin on his face and he came over and gave me a hug, and I thought, Who is this weirdo giving me a hug? What is he grinning about? Well, he was grinning because of his of the serenity that he had, and the comfortable place he was in his recovery. I've heard it said that You should wear your recovery like a loose-fitting set of clothes. It should flow easily and smoothly. And you could see that in in Paul's face. And he said, "If you got a problem? Now, in medical school back in um, uh, early 80s, uh, you really didn't get any training, no lectures at all on how to treat addiction in any of its forms. We learned all about cirrhosis and all the other physical problems that come from alcohol or drugs, but nothing, absolutely nothing about how to treat the disease. So I had no idea what he was talking about. In a moment of clarity, I said, yes. And he said, do you want to do something about it? And while the while yes was in my mouth, I said it again. Yes, I do want to do something about it. But again, I had no idea what was about to happen. And I said, can I go home and get a, a, a suitcase of clothes? And he says, no, just get in the car. And about An hour later, we arrived at at, uh, a detox, and I can remember uh, the clank of the great big steel doors that locked shut with their double and triple locks um, and the huge clank that it made behind me. And I wasn't afraid. Actually, uh, my feeling at that particular moment was of utter relief that the world that was outside of me, that was making me crazy, that was full of all kinds of angry and nasty and resentments and all of that stuff had suddenly been taken off of my shoulders. And I, and I was so relieved and I was so thankful just to be away from it. I can remember they, they said they kept me an extra day because I was so sick. Um, normally, it's only three days when you let the toxins drain out of your system. But they kept me for an extra day. One of the counselors said, you probably don't have any idea what's going on here, do you? And I said, no, actually, I don't. (laughs) He says, well, you being special and all, because you're a batshit crazy oncologist, they got a special place for you. There's a rehab down in Atlanta just for doctors and uh, doctors on the skids, and we're sending you there. Well, part of me just said, you know, Let's just go home and get stoned and forget all this stuff. And Part of me said, if you don't get on that airplane, you're going to die and it's not going to be pretty. So not knowing what to do, I, I knelt down by the side of my little cot bed there in detox. And I folded my hands just like I did when I was a little kid. Said the first prayer I probably said in, in, in years and years. And I just simply said, God help me. And I got up and went to bed. And the next morning I got up. And without even thinking about getting high or running away or any of that stuff, I just packed my bag and got on the airplane. When I was up in the air, the stewardess came by with her tray of drinks, and I just said no. And and then I suddenly remembered the prayer that had happened uh, the night before, but I couldn't really believe that it actually had worked. When I got to rehab, there were a bunch of other physicians that were there. Oh, and they took me by the hand and they said, oh, you better, you're better, you in such bad shape, you better not try to think by yourself, you might hurt yourself. We're going to give you a buddy to kind of, kind of guide you around so you won't get lost going to the bathroom. And these guys, like me, they were um, at the low point of their careers. Some had been there for a few weeks, some for a couple of months. And they were happy, they were cutting the fool, they were making jokes, and they seemed very comfortable with them themselves. And I thought, I don't know what it is that they got, but I want it. So those, my guys actually became my first higher power. We actually had a pretty good time together because we were all scared shitless. Uh, the The program there was, was very intense. You started with the morning spiritual at 845. You had either classes, lectures, or group sessions all day. Uh, you went and got something to eat, and then you had to be at a meeting every night. So by the time you got home, it was 9.30. And we would always sit around after we got home and talk about recovery in one form or another. So you were just inundated. You slept, ate, and swam in, in recovery and sobriety in one form or another. I can remember the first AA meeting that I went to. And I walked in, and it was a bunch of old white guys drinking coffee, and smoking cigarettes and the walls were stained with nicotine they were all yellow what was really funny was how i felt uh, i felt like i was at my mother's house and it was thanksgiving day and you could smell a turkey she was popping um uh, chocolate chip cookies uh, out of the oven and i could and i leaned my head up against her apron and felt warm and comfortable and at home and that's the way I felt in that crazy little room there. I felt like I had finally come home. Very strange feeling. <laughs> I began to work on the steps. I was I was so frightened that I was willing to do anything. You know, they say you got to be willing to uh, work on your recovery with all the energy and drive that you worked on your addiction. Because of my fear, that's that's what I did. I can remember one night I was supposed to meet my dope dealer to get a, a great big huge ball of cocaine, and I needed 1500 bucks, and in those days, you uh, could only take out $500 at a time from an ATM. It was Friday afternoon, Friday evening, and I drove to three different ATMs in three different counties to get enough money to do this. I drove another county to see my guy, and then he, he and I drove to another county to see the guy that was supplying him and then, and then I had to go, you know, I had to drive back home. It was like 4 a.m. in the morning before I got back. But that didn't seem like too much trouble to me. Um, and they said, if you, you have to put that kind of energy into your recovery. The reason I was so frightened, there is within each of us a monster that we don't like to think about or we don't want to talk about. And that monster, when it comes out I get coked up, it knows no bounds. A friend of mine, Billy, in, 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 and uh, actually he was in detox. Um, he said, Lynn, you, you don't understand how bad this disease is. He said, You will learn that you will give your old lady to the dope man for a bag of dope and you will kill him for half a bag. Well, I had discovered that that, in fact, was true. One night, uh, I was just absolutely, um, wasted. The worst, probably at least as, as bad as I'd ever been. And all of a sudden, this this monster that was like nine foot tall was standing next to me and he was threatening and he was frightening and he was me. That was me. And I ran and hid in the corner and I curled myself up into the smallest ball that I could. And I looked up at him and he was still growing. He was bigger and bigger and he was, he looked at me and he was smirking at me. And I was, I was, was I afraid, lo, I was sore afraid. Uh, because I knew he would kill me, all right? The impetus for my recovery was was that I would do anything to keep that monster from coming out again. One of the funny things about physicians in rehab is it takes them at least a month to figure out that they are not the doctor anymore. They are the patient. All right. And that's which is really funny. Now, mostly, you know, you're what you see today are 28 day programs. And the average for for us as doctors was three months and it could easily go four months or five months. I was so sick that they kept me for over seven months, almost eight months. Working the steps was was really easy. When I got to the fourth step, I wrote down all the stuff that I had done. And then I, then I looked at the character defects that went along with each one. And I knew what I had done. There was no hidden things going on. I knew exactly what I had done, and I knew my character defects. But the thing that I hadn't recognized was that each, each of the mistakes that I had made, and I wrote out what character defect it was, the one that, that showed up on every one, and which I had never thought of, was selfishness. There, over and over again, was the words in black and white staring up at me, Len is a selfish boy, and I had never, ever considered myself to be selfish. One of the things that I I learned was the value of prayer. When a person comes into rehab, you take away their chemical coping skills, and they really have not had enough time to develop the non-chemical coping skills that it takes to live in the world and that recovery gives us. And so at about two to three weeks in, everybody gets this real terrible fit of anger. And it was the same for me. And I was sure that I had this terrible, terrible resentment that just occupied all my thinking and everything about me. I was sure that this person had stabbed me in the back and ruined my whole life. And I, I was felt so bad. I was I was literally ready to take my car and park on the railroad tracks and wait for the 310 to show up. Fortunately, my roommates could see what was going on. and They took my car keys away from me. And then very shortly thereafter, this man showed up in our apartment, sat down on the couch, and I was fuming and venting. And he said, I think you've got a resentment there, Len. And I said, no, I don't. And he says, yes, you do. He says, I'm going to tell you how to get rid of it. And I said, OK. And he said, I'm going to teach you this prayer. And I said, whoa, 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 stop. I'm not sure I believe in God, and I certainly don't know how to pray. And he says, you want to get rid of this resentment? Then sit down and shut up and do what I tell you. All right. So I did. And he said, here's here's what I want you to do every day for 14 days. I want you to say this prayer. And it's really simple. God, I thank you for taking away my resentment and replace it with the faith that no matter what happens, everything is going to be all right. Well, being a good alcoholic, once a day was good, twice a day would be better. So I did that. And about a week later, I suddenly realized that this resentment, it wasn't gone, but it was had shrunk down to the size of a very small box over in one corner of my consciousness, and it wasn't making me crazy anymore. Now, I spent a lot of my life at the medical center doing research of all different kinds, cancer research, research on the bench, research in the clinic. But if you do an experiment and it works, you can't wait to try it again to see if, if your results are reproducible. So I, I couldn't wait to try this thing again because it had worked and it had really stunned me, you know. So an opportunity came up pretty quick and I did it again and it worked again and I did it again and it worked again. And what's funny is that you can replace the word, you can replace resentment with fear, obsession, anything that's bothering you at the moment. God, I thank you for taking away my fear and replace it with the faith that no matter what happens, everything will be all right. And that prayer has worked for me every time for over 23 years. I mean, there's nothing in my life that is as reproducible or as dependable as that prayer. That was the beginning of my faith, all right? Faith that when I pray this thing, it works for me right? Very simple. I know that it does. Every time I use it, it does. I've given it to other people and they've had the same result. It's the idea that faith replaces fear. It's in the, it's in the NA book, but it's not in ours, but it, it's spelled out. And you, if you look at spiritual uh, testaments all through uh, all different religions, different parts of, of humanity, the same thing is told that faith will replace the fear. And When you do that, you reach a state that the of uh, serenity. Uh, the Buddha was, was thought to have said that the secret to life is to live without fear. And, and I think there's truth in that. When I was still in rehab there, I knew I wasn't going to go back to medicine because the way I practiced medicine was killing me, quite literally. There's a lot about medicine that, that really feeds, that really fed my addiction. And so I prayed, what should I do when I get out of rehab? Well, sometimes I would pray and you could hear something—a voice or something. And sometimes I would just wake up the next morning, and there would be a word or two just sitting on my belly. And the next morning, when I woke up, there were these—there were these two words looking up at me, and they were "live free." The two words were "live free." Well, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that because, you know, I'm like I mentioned—I'm from the '60s and '70s, and free love, free sex, free dope, free phones, all that, free music, all that stuff that didn't work. And and I was sure that couldn't possibly be the answer. Okay. So about two weeks later, I did the same prayer again. God, what am I supposed to do when when I get out of here? And the next morning, there were two little words sitting on my tummy, looking up at me, and they were live freely. And it took me two years to figure out what that meant. And it means to live free of fear. And to the extent that I can remove the fear from my, from my consciousness, uh, I'm going to be happy. Um, I'm going to find serenity, and I'm going to be happy in this life. And for me, that's, that's what re- recovery really gave me, was serenity. Some people hope to find abstinence, which is where you don't drink. But as we both know, abstinence without, without sobriety is just being a dry drunk. You get a what what I think of as a daily dose of spirituality just by going to the meetings, but for me the the program is really about finding recovery, which is a whole new way of living, a whole new way of thinking about who I am. Part of the process of recovery is creating an entirely new person, getting rid of the old the old Adam, as Paul would say. And that turned out to be actually a lot of fun because I got to got to look at myself in a new way and the stuff, that the, the millstone that hung around my neck didn't bother me anymore. And it took a while. It's taken a long time for that to happen. The other thing that goes along with that is I get to take control of my thoughts and my emotions. No longer do, my, do I have to let my anger or my uh, irritability or my resentments drive my life. I can learn how to control the thoughts in my head. No longer do I have to respond reflexively. I have a buddy Wayne who who in the old days would would uh, say something really nasty about me, and I would just punch him, you know. Well, today, if Wayne says something really nasty about me, I go, I stop, and I look at what's going on, and I can say, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder why he said that, and just simply walk away. And I no longer have to respond reflexively. I set up, set myself the task of removing all negative thinking from my mind, and it took me six months to go from a state where there was a lot of negativity to where there was very, very little. That means that I have to get rid of my resentments. I have to find forgiveness by forgiving everybody for everything I even thought they might have done to me. I have to remove blame and shame and guilt from from my life. I have to get rid of the what ifs, the if onlys, and the shouldas and the couldas and the wouldas. If I pull the weeds out of my consciousness, then the good things will have a a much better chance of growing. Bill W. talks about, we'll meet you on the path of happy destiny. For me, uh, I I would use walking the spiritual path. My idea about recovery kind of goes like this. I was at a meeting with my friend Robert, who I've known for a long time, and we were talking about why we went to meetings. And Robert says, with a lot of confidence, he says, "I, I come to meetings to carry the message. And I said, well, Robert, what is the message? And he was was a little taken aback there because the message is not don't drink. I mean, the big book says the bottle is but a symptom. We have to deal with the underlying stuff. And it suddenly I had an epiphany sitting there and I flipped open the book and I found the quote and it was, we learned that living by spiritual principles would solve all of our problems. And that, in fact, is the message. So that my job now is to carry that message. A lot of people have reached out to help me on this on this pathway that I've been on, dozens and dozens since, since Paul, and Paul was the first. And, and I don't remember their names, most of them, but I do remember Paul's name. So what I do these days, the websites, the, the podcasts, the uh, social media blurbs and stuff, and the, and the book that I wrote all relate to this, to repay the debt that I owe to Paul and all those other people who reached out to me and took my hand when I was quite literally dying and saved my life. And the message that living by spiritual principles would solve all of my problems. Now that sounds sounds a little hokey, you know, um, and I get images of chariots of gold and angels with wings and harps, you know, little babies flying in the air, but that's not what I'm talking about at all. The faith that, that I got from realizing that when I prayed this prayer it would work was a practical uh, application of something that works in my life to change my life for the better. It's not some pie-in-the-sky thing. And the principles, the spiritual principles that I'm talking about start with honesty, right? Honesty, they say, is the spiritual principle behind the first step of AA. Because if I can't be honest with myself honestly look at my character defects, honestly look at who I am, and honestly look and take away the lies that I actually tell myself, then, then nothing good is going to happen. It's, it would be like building your house upon the sand. And as, as we know, when the first storm comes along, that, that, that whole house collapses. So, but honesty, they say has to be, it's the only step you have to do perfectly. But that is a profound spiritual principle. Other spiritual principles that you encounter working through the steps are compassion, kindness, thinking more of others than myself. The top of page 20, the very first sentence, very early on uh, in the big book, is that our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depended on our ability to, to think more of others than, than, than ourselves. That's a big deal, but it's a goal. For me, for me the, the goal of recovery is uh, serenity. And I would say that serenity, you have abstinence, sobriety, recovery, and the next step, and my goal, is is serenity. Now, that's an old term, and it's used in serenity prayer, but it's not just something you rattle off in the prayer. It's actually a state of mind. Now, other people would compare it to nirvana, heaven on earth, bliss, any number of words that, that mystics have used over the years, but it's not entirely some kind of mystical thing. It's a state of mind where... The past uh, isn't, isn't baggage that I carry along with me. That's one of the promises. It's a state of mind where I'm not afraid of the future. I have confidence that no, matter, that no matter what comes along today, I have the skills and the friends and the principles that I can deal with anything, absolutely anything. I live without fear. I am in the moment. I'm not worried about anything. You know, I'm not rehearsing in my mind the resentment against, against Joe Blow that I haven't seen in 10 years. And there is a calmness and a peace. My mother used to call it the peace that passeth understanding. And today I I know what she meant by that. And in this state, literally nothing can hurt you. There's nothing in the world that that can penetrate this. Now, I will let people or, or places or things take me out of my serenity, but I can recognize that pretty quickly. And I work to remove those things from my mind so I can go back to that state. Mindfulness is part of that where I'm paying attention to what's going on in front of me, paying attention to what I'm doing right now and not letting these these thoughts take control of my mind to send me reeling one way or another. If somebody came to you, Brett, and said, You're gonna die in exactly twenty four hours, all right? What would what would you do? What would I do if somebody said that to me? Well, in the old days we would have gone out and we'd have partied really hardy and we'd have met our demise in a state of wiped out consciousness. But those days are kind of gone, I hope. And what I would do today would would actually be pretty simple. I would live the next day and pay attention to absolutely everything that I did. In drinking a cup of coffee, I would taste it. I would feel the warmth in my mouth. I would feel how it felt going down, and I would smell the aroma of it. I would look out the window, and I wouldn't just see a flat 2d landscape like a painting i would look and i would see things in 3d i would see the trees i would see the leaves on them i would see the animals out there in our barnyard and i would actually see them when i had had lunch i would i would smell the food i would feel the texture of it in my mouth i would taste it on the front of my tongue and on the back of my tongue and on it on the way down all right i would literally cherish every moment that's one definition of mindfulness. But fortunately, Brett, for you and me, I have it on, on good authority that we'll probably live longer than just tomorrow. But why not live that way anyway? All right. That's mindfulness. That's that's part of the gift of finding that state of serenity where everything is is a joy. Everything is uh, happy. Everything is good. In the big book, it says that way in the back in the stories about the, the part about acceptance, um, 417, I think. He says that nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Uh, I verge on metaphysics sometimes, but what I take that to mean is that, that God's world is perfect just the way that it is. Well, I would say that the world in front of me, the world I live in, is perfect just the way it is, if only I have the eyes to see it. I get hung up in dualities that there's such a thing as as good and evil or good and bad. But as as Shakespeare said, uh, there is no thing good or bad, but my thinking makes it so. So I get to put the spin on everything in my life. I can say, oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's terrible. And I can get all upset about it and get into my self-righteous anger. And all I've done is put a spin on something that really, in and of itself, has no spin. And that's one of, the, one of the gifts of serenity is, is that I don't have to let this stuff upset me anymore. I can look beyond the, the irritability, the, the stone in my shoe, and um, see, the, see where there is, in fact, some goodness in everything. They told me that in everything, there is a lesson and a blessing. And if I can look, if I can remember to look, I can find that in anything that happens to me life is good. (laughs) As a friend of mine said, life is easy. And if it seems otherwise, maybe you're doing it wrong. The idea of uh, having something I can reach out to when I get into trouble is key to this whole process of recovery. Because the, the insanity of my addiction, I believe, is hardwired into my brain. When I was about a year sober, I was back down in Jacksonville, Florida. It was a beautiful spring day. The um, flowers were out and the sun was out. And I'd just gone to a noon meeting and it was a really good meeting. I felt really, really good. And I was walking down the street and there was a delicatessen a couple of blocks down that had really good food. I thought I'll go down there and I'll get a couple of sandwiches and take them home. and have lunch. So as I'm walking down the street, absolutely blissful, I hear this voice come over my right shoulder. And it said, psst, you can have a glass of wine while you wait. And I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What's going on here? That's not good. (laughs) And then it said, they won't be able to smell it under your breath. (laughs) And I went, that's ridiculous. I know you can smell wine on somebody's breath. It's very, very distinctive. And then the thought came, but if the voice says it, it must be true. And now I'm really frightened. Um, I don't have a big book. I date myself because I didn't have a cell phone in those days. I couldn't call my sponsor. I had just gone to a meeting, so what do I do, you know? And at this point, the voice says, You can have two. Well, if I had two glasses of wine, I would finish the bottle, and and when they closed at midnight, they would pour me into a cab, and I would have to go home and face the hurt faces of, of of my family, and they would send me back to detox, and yada, yada, yada. I, and I didn't know what to do i was i was I was at a loss, and suddenly it occurred to me that maybe I should pray well, I didn't know much I didn't know much about praying in those days and uh, so I just the only prayer I could think of was a serenity prayer and I went all the way through the serenity prayer, walking down the street with my eyes open, not caring who heard me all right and I was so frightened when I got to the end of saying it, I started saying it over. And I got about halfway through the prayer and I stopped because I could not remember what, why I was praying it. And I walked down the street, went into the deli, got my sandwiches. And as I was checking out, I suddenly remembered what had happened on the street and I laughed. And that's the point of having a higher power, having a faith that I, that I can reach out to when all my defenses fail. If I'm trying to change somebody's... Uh, sense of self-worth, I would start at the point of changing their thinking. But you see, with alcoholics and addicts, when they come in, their thinking is screwed. Uh, Most of them are are in a state of depression. Every time I get high, I come down. And when I come down, I'm lower than where I started. And by months or years of using uh, clinical depression is is almost uh, universal. Every get high that you can name is a neurotoxin, it damages or kills neurons. And, and this will, will, will last long, long after the poisons have drained out of my system. People have looked at, had done biopsies on the brains of alcoholics a year after they quit drinking. You could still see the changes in there. So that these different things will clear, but not, not soon. So you have to intervene at the point of behavior. All right. We're here in enforced abstinence for long enough that our minds begin to heal. And then we can begin, then then we're in a behaving uh, behaving mode of, of abstinence and in sobriety. And then our minds can kind of grab a hold of the ideas. But it's not going to happen in 28 days, especially if it takes your month to figure out you're not the patient anymore. And that's why 28-day programs often don't work and part of the reason why the programs set up for physicians and other professionals take two, three, four, five, and in my case, as I mentioned, uh, almost eight months to be effective. That's one of the keys for uh, why physicians do better. Addiction is a very universal and democratic disease. It does not care what part of the country you come from, uh, how much money your daddy made, what kind of car your mama drives, where you went to school, what kind of job you have. It cuts across every demographic. It doesn't care if you're a ditch digger or a doctor. The, the overall prevalence is about 10%, and that's true worldwide. So about one out of 10 doctors is going to become impaired. Over 70% of, of the doctors who complete this program will be clean and sober, not one or two, but five years later, and they will all be, and they will be practicing medicine. They will have returned to a fully productive life. Now, this compares with, with 10% at 28 days. That's the most you can hope for, and it may be less now. I don't know. And the best that, Al- that Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm obviously a great big fan of AA, the best they can do at one year is 20%. But we're talking five years so that there is a huge difference between uh, the results of this intensive program compared to standard programs and it makes a big difference now the principles and the techniques that they used are really no different than um, standard programs but they're pounded in you eat and breathe and and, and live uh, recovery for several months and it makes that's where that's where the difference comes from I think That, and you throw in the idea that if you don't get this right, uh, you lose your license. What is life like now? Uh, As I mentioned earlier, I've been doing this for over 23 years now, and every year it's gotten better. I'm the happiest I've ever been. I'm in the best relationship I've ever been in. I don't have nearly as much money, but I don't need anything anymore. My pursuit of, of the material just doesn't seem to matter anymore. I want to be the best person that I can be. The hardest thing in recovery for me is not working the steps or anything like that. It's actually trying to learn how to think more of others than myself. And I still work on that. Maybe one day I'll I'll get a little better at it. I don't know. But I love life. There is beauty everywhere I turn and I can see how other people are are happy. Perhaps the most important uh, lesson I have learned out of recovery is uh, simply let go and let God. I believe that my higher power is just mine. It's not, it won't work for anybody else. You have to find your own. When I was in rehab, they gave us this worksheet. You know, how do you find your higher power? And I stared at it and I stared at it. And when I was a kid, my I was raised Southern Baptist and my, my grandfather was a foot washing Baptist minister. And, uh, he He used to scare me. And when, when I was 15, my younger brother died of leukemia, and I knew then that what they had been trying to shove down my throat, I just didn't believe in, which meant there was no higher power at all. The The job was open, and I applied, and and, and hey, I got it. I got to be my own higher power. Well, you, you know where that took me. So anyway, when they gave me this worksheet, I was sitting there thinking, and two words popped into my head, unconditional love. All right. That is that. My higher power loves everything equally. expects nothing in return. Only wants the absolute best for me. When my brother died of leukemia, I felt terrible. It was like somebody was ripping my heart apart. Almost exactly a year later, my father died of a heart attack, and I thought, "Well, I know the whole about this funeral stuff. I I can handle this." But in fact, what happened was that I was completely numb. I felt nothing. It was as if this giant emotional clamp had come down, shut shut off my feelings, shut off my heart. And it said, that's enough, Lindell. You've had enough pain. You're not going to feel any more. And some people say the ego and the, and the heart should be in balance. And when, when this clamp comes down, the ego really gets free rein. And I've talked to a lot of alcoholics and addicts, and something similar has happened to them, where they have, for any number of reasons, they have shut down the heart, and the ego then takes control. One of the problems with the ego is that it's driven by fear. And the ego acts out of fear. Low self-esteem. I'm not good enough. Therefore, I've got to be smarter than everybody. I've got to tell you what's wrong, what, what your problems are, and, and how to fix them. And I, will, I then begin, because I can't be satisfied, because I've lost this inner love and contentment, I reach out into the material world to grab everything that I can. Um and, it, and it's never satisfying I've got still got this hole in my chest that can't be filled by money or a new car or a girl or anything, and the ego is what turns me away from the light. So what I have to do is move the ego out of the way, which means I have to take control of my fear when I can remove the fear from my life uh, when i can when I can put the ego under some control and allow the heart to come back up then I have begun to write my ship. I've talked to any number of alcoholics and addicts who will tell you that that they get sober and they have all these emotions. and They don't know what to do with them. And that's what's happening, right? The clamp on the heart is being released. To let go, then, means to let go of the ego. All the things that the ego wants. The ego wants to climb the corporate ladder. It wants wants to bang every girl it sees. It wants to be the richest guy in three counties. Um, it wants to be president of this or, or the best of this or the best of that. And, and none of those are really achievable goals. But if I let go of the ego, remove the fear, let go of the ego. And what I do then is is that opens the gateway for this, this unconditional love to flow through me and out into the world. Let go and let God. It, it's incredibly profound. One of the things that i've learned is that spiritual truth is where you find it you can you can find the same uh wisdom uh any number of places in medicine if you read an article in the medical literature and it's a year old it's already out of date but spiritual wisdom really hasn't changed since the first since the shepherds were out you know watching their flocks by night and and those the same ideas the same truths can be found in uh, whether you look at buddhism or Christi- or the words of jesus uh, Hinduism, or uh, the work, the the words of Lao Tse, you can find the same principles everywhere. Uh, the golden rule, in one form or another, is everywhere that you look, and you can see spiritual truth around you. Let go and let
0: God. Yeah. Any other questions? Any other thoughts? Anything you'd like to pursue? The main thought that comes to mind. Do you think, as a doctor, was it more difficult for you to get behind the concept? of addiction being a disease, or did that seem to be more natural because of your past experience and, and being a doctor?
1: It was not something I had ever encountered before. To begin in the program of, of recovery, uh, when the, when I came in, I didn't trust anybody. Uh, I was definitely afraid to talk to anybody. I mean, in the world of medicine, standing in the ER, it's easier to talk about your mistress uh, than it is about God. Or or uh, you certainly would never show weakness by telling somebody you had this kind of problem. You hit it. And so I didn't trust anybody, including myself. When I came in, what I heard were people who, when they told their stories, it was like they tagged along behind me and written down the, the important parts and then were reading it back to me. And I realized that, that they understood, and they knew what was going on, and I could trust them. And that's, that's where trust came from. And next, the most important thing after that has got to be hope, because I was hopeless. As I mentioned, I knew I was going to die in a dark alley being shot by some dope dealer in the middle of the night. And hope came from um, two places. The first was that they said, I was a good person with a bad disease. Uh, Larry and I, one of my friends were, were in a, a group and the counselor was, was grilling me and he said, who are you? And I said, well, um, uh, I'm an oncologist. And he says, no, no, that's what you used to do. And I said, well, I'm a father and a son and a brother or a husband. He says, no, 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 no. Those are your relationships. I was at a loss there. So I said, well, I'm a flat top guitar picker from Tennessee. And he just looked at me, you know, And so after the after the meeting, Larry grabbed me by the arm and we walked down the hall and he found this empty classroom and he looked inside, looked around, made sure it was empty, pulled me inside and shut the door behind us. And I'm babbling on like like usual. And he says, if you'll shut up, I'll tell you who you are. And I said, "Okay." And he said, you are a child of God and your job is to bring God's love into the world. You know, in medical school, you, you know something because you've read it. You've done research or you've taken a survey or something. But, but what I call unconventional knowledge is this knowledge that comes in from some other source. I knew in my gut that what he said was true. I hadn't taken, gotten a consensus, hadn't, hadn't Googled it or anything like that, uh, but I knew it was true. You are a child of God and your job is to bring God's love into the world. Well, to be a child of God really reinforces the idea of hope. Not only uh, am I not a bad person, but there is this spark of divinity within me. Clearly, my behavior and my body will never be perfect. This piece of the universe, of universal goodness, of unconditional love is perfect. And my job then is simply to let go and let God. Move the ego out of the way and bring God's love into the world. Bring the love, the creativity, the kindness, the compassion that flows from that unconditional love into me and out into the world. Then it just becomes a question of how do I do that? One of the things that I believe to be true is that God's will is not what. God's will is how. If God had destined that I should fly airplanes and instead I'm a doctor, well, then I've got to go to hell because I didn't follow God's will. No. God's will, I believe, is how. And it takes back to the idea of live free of fear. All right. God's will is how do I live? How do I live in this world? And then it just simply becomes a focusing on those things which I do the best and which fulfill me the most while uh, being of help to others. One of the factors, I think, that comes through with, with uh, kindness and compassion is actually creativity. I think that human beings are innately creative, and which is why we like to work. You know.
0: Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about the book?
1: Yes, I've taken the ideas that I learned in in recovery over the last twenty three years, the concepts, the principles, the techniques, and I've collected them over from watching many many people over over obviously more than two decades, not just in in rehab, but uh, it all began in rehab. And I've put them into a book and the book is shaped as a memoir of uh, myself and a group of doctors going through rehab and the stuff that we went through and uh, the things that happened to us, the lessons that we learned and our discussions and trying to figure out this and figure out that. And it starts on day one of rehab and, and as I come into the airport in Atlanta. Each little section is is another lesson, another idea, another experience that that pushes me towards towards a recovery that I can live with and it, it's not a rehab of the twelve re, rehash of the twelve steps. what it is is looking at the principles that make up the twelve steps. It concentrates on how to change myself, how to change my thinking, how to change my behavior pretty much every concept that we've touched on in this interview is is included there in one form or another the idea behind the book is to carry the message that that is living by spiritual principles will will solve my problems the name of the book is a spiritual pathway to recovery from addiction a physician's journey of discovery it's available on all the usual outlets where you can buy it online it's 12.99 and if I order it from the publisher it costs me over seven bucks by the time I get it and if I send it uh, it costs me another four bucks uh, if I'm going to mail it to somebody so I'm not going to make any money off of it but the ebook I can give away for free right to as many people that want it so the idea then is to spread to carry the message to as many people as I can if I have at a meeting and there's 30 people there I know that I'll hit three of them. Because they'll come up afterwards and shake my hand, you know, talk to me. So that the most I can hope for in any particular group is is one out of ten. So if I if I went to a and told my story once a week, you know, for the next umpteen years, the, the number that I can reach is actually very small. Through the book, through the uh, social media and stuff, I can sometimes reach two or three thousand different uh, different people in a, in a week's time. And some will read the book and some won't, but it doesn't really matter. The idea is, as is, is my friend Robert said, is to carry the message.
0: And if people are looking for you on social media, what what is your name and how can they find you?
1: The uh, Linville Meadows is is pretty much on all the, all the different social media. You can Google Linville M. Meadows MD and you'll find me. I have a website devoted to the book. It's called Spiritual Pathway to Recovery. I have a website devoted to understanding the disease of addiction and its treatment, and it's called uh, The Answer is Recovery.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing your story and all of your knowledge, man. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Pleasure is all mine, Brad.
0: Thank you, Dr. Meadows, for being on the show today. If you guys would like more information about Dr. Meadows or his book, the links will be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.